And we've been in a series uh, for, well, we'll be in a series for three weeks simply called Unseen Forces. And uh, before we get to the second of the series, graduates, let me just speak to you for, for a moment. Uh, we're thrilled to death that you are where you are, and we know that the best of life is still ahead of you. But remember this, it will be the unseen forces that will be like pitfalls or roadblocks in the path before you. Dealing with an enemy that you can see is a lot easier than dealing with an enemy you can't. And when the dark side unleashes itself on you, it can be tough. The enemy will use his best tools to destroy your future. Those unseen yet powerful urgings like pride, envy, resentment, arrogance, gossip, anger, misdirected passions, vengeance, self-indulgence, impurity, lack of self-discipline, and the list goes on. They are stealthy feelings. They sneak up on you, and once they are unleashed, they are not very easily restrained or retrieved. So always, for every day in the future, always maintain your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your commitment to Him. And always, always be on your guard against unseen forces. They can come out of nowhere and leave you beaten and devastated if you aren't careful. The inexperienced boxer went into the ring with high expectations of victory, which were quickly dismissed after the first round. Bell rang, he walks back over to his stool, sits down, and the trainer pats him on the back and says, good job, kid, he hadn't laid the glove on you. Second round was worse than the first, and at the bell, he limped back to the corner. The trainer patted him on the back, keep it up, kid, he hasn't laid a glove on you. Third round was devastating. He was down for the count and saved only by the bell before the referee got to 10. They dragged him back to the corner, propped him up on his stool. The trainer patted him on the back and said, go back in there, kid, and get him this time. He hadn't laid a glove on you. The boxer turned to the trainer and he said, okay, I'll go back in. But you keep your eye on the referee because somebody's beating the tar out of me in there. <laughs> now that's life. Sometimes, sometimes... You come out of life beaten and bloodied, and you have no idea exactly what's going on because you can't put your finger on the problem. Sometimes there's no earthly explanation for life's toughest moments. Perhaps if we knew what was going on behind the scenes, it would help us understand. But sometimes it might scare us to death. Other times it might give us great confidence at how God is at work. I've always been fascinated by this story that it comes in 2 Kings chapter 6 in the Old Testament. It's about the king of Aram who wants to invade and, uh, and, and possess the Israelites. Now, Aram was a country that was no, located just to the northeast of Israel at that day and time, about, about the region that is modern-day Syria, all right? And the king of Aram had several plans to come down, and every time he had a plan in place for an attack, God would reveal the plan to the prophet Elisha in Israel. And Elisha would go to the king of Israel and say, this is what's going on, stay away from that area today. So after several thwarted attack attempts, the king of Aram thinks he's got a traitor in his officers, and so he's grilling his officers, and they all denied the allegations. And one of them spoke up with this suggestion in 2 Kings 6.12. He said, none of us, my lord, the king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Now, Elisha didn't have a direct line to the king's private life, but God did. And God knew his plans, and God intervened to save his people. Don't ever forget that you cannot hide your deeds, your words, or even your thoughts 
from the Lord. God knows. So the king of Aram is now really angry at Elisha and has determined to take him captive and prisoner. So he finds out he's living in the city of Dotham and he sends his troops at night and they surround the entire city of Dotham. And when Elisha's intern comes out of the house the next morning, he sees the, the army surrounding them and he's scared to death. And he goes back in and says, oh, what are we going to do? And Elisha is unfazed by all this. And Elisha prays, by the way, good first thing to do when the enemy is attacking, pray. And Elisha <clears throat> says, God, open his eyes so that he can see. Now, the, the, the young man had no problem seeing the army, but what he couldn't see was what was invisible to mortal eyes. And God opened his vision and allowed him the opportunity to see what people cannot see. And suddenly he sees the army of the Lord that is now surrounding the, the Aramean army, and they are armed with bright swords and chariots and horses, and they glowed with all the glory of heaven as if almost it was like fire. It was so bright and consuming. And suddenly the whole Aramean army is struck blind at Elisha's request. And here's this little old prophet that leads the entire enemy army into the capital city, at that time Samaria, of the Israelites. And then, and then he prays that God will open their eyes. God opens their eyes. And now they're scared to death because they find themselves inside the enemy's capital. <laughs> the king of Israel says to the prophet Elisha, he said, well, what should I do with them? Should I kill them? Should I kill them? And, and Elisha says, of course not. Feed them and let them go. And so... The king throws a banquet for the enemy and sends him home. And for a long time, the country of Aram left the Israelites alone. What a powerful story. There's great lessons here. Pray in the tough spots, all right? Trust God when you cannot see the outcome. Good lesson. Practice hospitality. Sometimes hospitality is better than all the military might. Good lessons, but that's not why I told you the story. I told you the story this morning because I wanted you to see that there is a lot going on in a spiritual dimension that we cannot understand. What the young man could not see until God gave him supernatural vision was that there is an army around them that is God's army. And so I can't see, you can't see what God is up to, but I'm telling you, there is a lot going on behind the scenes. The angels of God are hard at work. Now, what do we know about these beings called angels? The word itself simply means messenger, okay? It's a real simple word, means messenger. In Scripture, it seems that their messenger role was always on God's behalf. In other words, they aren't messengers to God. They are messengers from God to us. Most of the time, we don't know their names, but a few of them are named. Gabriel, for one, is named He's the one that appeared to a young woman by the name of Mary and to her fiancé, a man by the name of Joseph, and told them that Mary was going to give birth to the very Son of God, the grandest message any angel ever carried. What's more, the word angel appears about 300 times in the Bible, which suggests to me that this is no small part of God's story. 300 times? We ought to know something about them. I guess the best way to describe angels is they are God's special forces. Now, last week I said, okay, I will, I will deal a little bit more with the, uh, 
the dark side here before we go into the good things about angels. So let me keep my promise to you and talk a little bit about fallen angels. If we had a video from this day and time, it would be entitled Angels Gone Wild, but we don't. So <laughs> let me just tell you a little bit about it, all right? As we saw, the demonic world is actually comprised of fallen angels who rebelled in heaven in a war against God, led by Satan himself. And these demons and angels, uh, former angels, have been cast out of heaven now, uh, and they've taken up residence, it seems, here. Some of them have been imprisoned. Some of them seem to be free. And uh, during biblical times, demons, these fallen angels, actually were able to possess people. They, they took up residence inside a person and controlled them. Quite frequently, Jesus cast out demons in his earthly ministry. Uh, and so the question always arises, is there demon possession today? You're probably not going to like my answer because my answer is, I don't know. There may be, but maybe not. And the reason I say that is because theologians have argued down for the last 2,000 years that because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that changed everything, and it actually changed how demons interact with human beings. This is true, I can tell you this, that if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is in you, which is the promise that we have from God, then you can't. There's no way you can be possessed because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, the Bible says. So if you're a Christian, it's not going to happen. Do demons possess people? Today, I, I don't know. I've, I've heard stories from missionaries who come from other parts of the world that would certainly suggest that it's the same kind of thing that we read about in the Bible. Uh, but, but again, I don't know. And, there, and as far as the wicked encounters in the world, I, I can only explain that from the influence of Satan. So I, I don't know if there's possession, but this I can say, there is certainly oppression. That Satan and his minions oppress people. They, sometimes the weight of the temptation that comes on our lives is just almost overwhelming. And sometimes, in rare occasions, you might be able to sense that oppressiveness. It's only happened to me once. Brad and I were on this mission trip that we took to India a few years ago, and I've told you about this before, but in thinking of this, this comes back to my mind as if it were yesterday. Uh, we were, while we were in India, our, our missionary host took us to a Hindu temple that was going through a worship service. They were having a celebration to the idol uh, Shiva, and they were worshiping this, this pagan idol when we went to the temple. Now, you got to know, I grew up in southern Indiana. You take this kid out of southern Indiana to India, and I'm already, you know, out of my comfort zone, and then you take me to a temple where there's a pagan worship service going on, and, I, and I'm already, uh, you know, just kind of anxious about the whole thing. But when we stepped into the temple, I don't know how to describe it other than the fact that I just felt this weight upon my shoulders. There wasn't anything there, but it, I, I just felt something weighing me down. Have you ever felt darkness? It, it felt dark and, and, and heavy, and I couldn't wait to get out of that place. And when we exited the temple, the weight lifted and was gone. Now, I don't know how to describe that. I don't know what that was. My only conclusion is that, the, it, that it is the oppressiveness of, of, the, of the power of the dark side at work against God. That's the dark side. Now let's look at the brighter side. Let me give you some facts about angels that we know from scriptures. Here, here's the first one. Angels are created beings. Angels 
are created. They, they have a creation of their own. I think most of us have the wrong idea of where and how angels come to be. Two men were having a coffee at Starbucks, and one said to the other, my mother-in-law is an angel. To which his buddy replied, oh, you're so lucky, mine is still alive. <laughs> I know I'm going to burst your bubble here. This is a spoiler alert. Bad news, when you die and go to heaven, you will not become an angel. Okay? They are of a separate occasion. You may act angelic here at times, but you never have been and you never will be an angel. Okay? You will be you. And you're not an angel. You aren't a part of the angelic creation. The book of Hebrews, uh, or, well, first of all, the book of Colossians reminds us that God created everything. Uh, in, in verse uh, 16 of chapter 1, it says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So we know that they were created. And then the book of Hebrews clearly states that Jesus is superior to the angels, because he was not created. Jesus is eternal. He is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So he's greater than the angels. But then Hebrews goes on and says this, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, when Jesus became one of us so that he might live out his life and die for our salvation, he became lower than the angels, which tells me that we are lower than the angels are superior to us, but inferior to Christ. When were they created? Now, I, I think by the time we get to heaven, we may be on equal standing at that point in time, but we will maintain our, our same separate creations. When were they created? We're not sure. But, but the book of Job gives us a brief insight. Uh, toward the end of Job, God begins to question Job. And in chapter 38, verse 4, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set? Uh, on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? And all the angels shouted for joy. So, in other words, God is saying here to Job, when I created the world and all that is in it, where were you? Because the angels were singing with joy. So the angels must have been created at that point in time. Here's a second uh, fact that I can share with you, and that is angels are spiritual beings. Now, as such, they don't have physical bodies. And by that, mean that, by that I mean they, they aren't flesh and bone and blood. But that, that shouldn't alarm you in any sense of the word. Someday you will have a spiritual body. You will be a spiritual being at some point in time following the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. And you say, oh no, that means I'm going to be invisible. That means I'll just float down the golden streets and I'll pass right through my great-great-grandparents and they won't know it and I won't know it and we won't know anybody up there. Do not confuse being a spirit with being a spiritual being or having a spiritual body, all right? John writes in the Revelation about seeing thousands upon thousands of angels. And, and Isaiah writes about this, this vision in heaven where he saw the seraphim and they had six wings. Now, how could these men write about what they saw if they were invisible? Think about it like this. A fish has a body. 
but it's an aquatic body. It's designed for life in the water. You take a fish out, put him on the land, he's not going to live very long. Conversely, we've got a body that's designed for life on the land. It's a terrestrial body. You stick us in the water for an extended period of time, and we're not going to live very long. But it doesn't mean the fish don't have a body, and it doesn't mean we don't have a body. It's just two different bodies designed for two different environments. When we talk about spiritual bodies, we talk about a body that is designed for life in a spiritual realm. When we transition from this life in, in this world to heaven, we too will have that new body. It won't be a flesh, bone, and bud, blood body. It'll be a better body designed for life in a new dimension. Make sense? So the angels have a spiritual body, but it's not a human body. Thus, it's sometimes not visible to us. Here's something else that's interesting. Unlike human beings, angels do not reproduce. Apparently, their numbers have remained the same since their creation. Also, unlike us, they do not die. And unlike us, they are always represented in Scripture by the masculine gender. I don't know what that means since they're of another creation. Don't take that for, you know, any particular. But it's just interesting that they are always mentioned in the masculine. And while angels are not like us in many ways, we will be like them in at least one way when we get to heaven. The Sadducees came to Jesus. That was a group of religious leaders, and they were asking Jesus a trick question. Talked about a woman who had been married to a man who died, and then she was married to another man, and he died, and, and, and then she was married to a third man, and, and he died, and, and then finally she died, and they said, in the resurrection, when we get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus answered like this. He said, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean we become angels. It means that like angels aren't married, we won't be married anymore when we get to heaven. All angels are not the same. Cherubim seem to guard the holiness of God. Seraphim seem to be devoted to worship around the throne. And Michael is described as the archangel. Archangel always appears in the singular, so we assume there's only one, which may mean that he is the head of all the angelic order. God is not a God of chaos, but order, so they have different functions and roles and purposes and designs, cherubim, seraphim, and archangel. Here's the last thing I want you to see, and that is angels are ministering beings. Uh, having understood the plan of God because of being in His presence, are you ready for this? Angels are curious and interested in what's going on in our lives. When Peter wrote his letter to the church, he is referencing the work of the Old Testament prophets, and he says this, 1 Peter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them, in other words, it was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves but you. In other words, when the prophets wrote what they did, it was for future generations. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Angels are fascinated with the story of salvation. They are fascinated with the fact that Jesus came to this world. The, the angels were on standby anytime Jesus needed something. The angels came and ministered to him on, on occasions, the Bible says. And Jesus, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he went to the cross, told the Roman soldiers, he said, I could have called 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. And they would have been here like that and changed everything. Do you know that angels rejoice every time we have a baptism or every time somebody decides they want to follow Christ and, and repent? In, in, in Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus tells two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, and both of them end with words like these. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And the other parable ends with these words. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Wow, isn't that cool? When a bell rings, angels do not get their wings. But when somebody is baptized, angels rejoice. And because they are interested in God's plan of salvation, they may have specific roles of help or encouragement to carry out in our lives. I don't know. But Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We're the ones that inherit salvation. And Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to entertain angels, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Who knows how they may be working behind the scenes to carry out God's will. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about us having a guardian angel. It's a nice thought, but that's not promised. But the Bible does suggest that when we die, that maybe angels help escort us home. In the story of the beggar named Lazarus when he died, the Bible says angels carried him to Abraham's side. Maybe that's just figurative, but it's a beautiful thought. Jesus tells, this, tells us this in Matthew 25. He said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. So at His coming, the angels are coming too to help take us home. The angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, never the new. It's interesting to me. We, the angel of the Lord is a special angel. Sometimes the angel of the Lord, the Lord and God are used interchangeably, which would suggest to me that it might very well be that this is God who's taken on a human appearance to communicate something greatly significant to us human beings. And the reason that the angel of the Lord is absent in the New Testament is because Jesus came, and that was the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. Well, those are some thoughts about angels this morning. And I got to tell you, this has been a different sermon for me to write and to preach because it's basically informational this morning. But that said, there are some applications, and I don't want you to miss these applications this morning. There are things that we can learn and imitate that we see in angels. Here's the first one. When God gives you an important job to do, do it to the best of your ability. Give it your all. Angels serve. They are always in the right place at the right time. In the Bible, they shared life-changing messages. They rescued people who were struggling. They led people to freedom, and they even helped save lives. Now, we live in a natural world, but we can do the same thing. We too can serve. We can reach out to those who are struggling and encourage, feed, clothe, and help them gain a fresh start. We can share life-changing messages, the message of Christ with them, which will lead people to freedom and will save their souls. So, when God has a job for you to do, do it to the best of your ability because that's the way the angels work. Here's another thing. It's not about me. Angels are not about themselves. They are always focused on God and His will. When we are self-focused and self-indulgent, it blurs our purpose and our reason for existence. Folks, if I ask you this morning, the chief reason why we are here, do you know what the answer is? Our chief reason for existence is to bring glory and honor to God. And we do that through our lives, our worship, our deeds, our thoughts, our actions, that's what angels do. It's not about them. It's about God. They're, for all of their supernatural strength, their greatest strength is in their humility. 
And we would do well to find our strength in the same godly virtue. Andrew Murray once said, the truth is this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Last lesson, make your life an act of worship. The, the danger in studying angels is you get so excited about angels, you forget that they're point, pointing us to God. A angels don't want you studying them or worshiping them. They want us to be pointed to God. But you go into any major bookstore, or you go online, and you can order all kinds of books, volumes upon volumes uh, about angels. And some people absolutely devote their lives to angels and angelology and all these kinds of things. They get really wrapped up in angels. Uh, metaphysician Doreen Virtue has written a lot about angels, and she writes that all angels love every person unconditionally, and they help everyone who calls on them, regardless of one's faith or one's lack of it. She suggests that angels can be counted upon to assist people even when it comes to mapping out your travel plans. According to Dr. Virtue, angels will help you get an extremely nice, warm, friendly, and competent customer service representative when you're calling an airline to book reservations. Angels will help you avoid lines at check-in, get you through the airport security without being searched, and ensure that your baggage is first on the luggage carousel when you arrive. If that's true, I have no guardian angels. I've been blacklisted by the cherubim. <laughs> now, such nonsense may sell books, but there is no shred of evidence that that's the purpose of the angel. I can tell you from the Bible, that is not the purpose. They are not here to make life easy for us. They serve to point us to worship God because they know, because they've been in His presence, that the only thing that matters is a life devoted and focused on the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if we give them too much attention, they failed in their task. I, let, let me close with just this just tiny glimpse into worship in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Can you not see it? Millions upon millions upon millions of angels surrounding the throne. And there we are in the midst of them. And the angelic sound of their voices as they sing to the praise of the living God forever. Now, I'm telling you, that is a picture that is, is beyond my imagination. But I know this. I won't worship him there if I don't worship him here. I won't be in his presence there if I don't serve him and know him here. The unseen forces are hard at work. The enemy is tempting you to give up on your commitment to God, to give up on your worship of the king. And the angels are cheering you on to make him your number one priority. They can't make you do either one. The choice is yours.